Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. Hideki Matsuyama. He made history. He won the Masters yesterday, but really, he won it on Saturday. He won it on Saturday, and then he won it again on Sunday. Because it was the back nine on Saturday that he played the final eight holes in six under. He went from being two shots off the lead to leading by four shots going into Sunday. That is legitimately one of the great Saturday back nines in the history of Augusta. But despite that fact, despite the fact that he had a fat lead going into Sunday, there still were doubters. There were still folks who were only too happy to take the field over Matsuyama. Even with the lead, after all, there were much bigger names in the field than the guy with the lead. Bigger names that have had experience and success. And I understand that, right? Sleeping with the lead on Saturday night is never an easy thing to do, ever. But this cat's different. If you watched him and you know anything about him, you know that this is not a guy that shows a lot of emotion. It's not a guy who actually talks very much at all. He's just doing work. This guy is just doing work. He had a plan. He worked that plan. However, according to him, his plan did not go according to plan on Saturday night. Going into Sunday morning, like I said, it is not always easy to sleep with a four-shot lead on Saturday. My plan this morning was to wake up about 9.30, but needless to say, I arose much earlier than that and couldn't go back to sleep. So I came to the golf course early, had a really good warm-up. I felt really good going to the first tee until I stood on the first tee, and then it hit me that I'm in the last group of the Masters tournament, and I'm the leader four strokes and then it was really nervous right so that's Hideki's interpreter but I could see that and then those nerves end up showing up big big time on that first tee for the first time the leader by four strokes knew that he was the leader by four strokes and played with the weight of the entire world on his back because we're not talking about a guy just looking to win his first major we're talking about a guy looking to win his country's first major. And it's a weight that he really did appear to feel at the PGA Championship back in 2017 when he had that lead at the turn and then bogeyed five of his final nine holes and then finished in fifth. Now he had another look and he was nervous yet again. He went right off the first tee, had a scramble for a bogey. Meantime, up ahead, Will Zalatoris. The guy who looked like Happy Gilmore's caddy had a couple of birdies. And then suddenly, Hideki's lead is down to just one. The guy had been on the course for less than 15 minutes and watched his lead get shredded. And you could feel what was coming next, right? It seemed like one of those Sundays at the Masters was getting to another player. Like it had gotten to so many other guys before him. Guys with bigger names than him. Guys with much better resumes than him. I mean, you can run down a list of the guys who've had leads on Sunday at Augusta only to choke them away. And yes, I know, the C word is a reason to go in golf. But I'm talking about legitimate chokes. And this is the anniversary of a bunch of the most brutal chokes. Greg Norman, 25 years ago. Rory McIlroy, a decade ago. Jordan Spieth, five years ago. Some of the biggest names in golf get absolutely abused. On Sunday at Augusta. I mean, because the pressure there in that moment is unlike anything even those guys have ever experienced. 
So if you're like Hideki and you've never won a major before, it's even worse. And again, he's carrying the hopes and dreams of an entire country. So it would have been no surprise to me if that guy, or if the guy who saw his four-shot lead get cut to one after the first hole, bogeyed the second, and then shot a 79 on the day, and then finished way back in the pack. That would not have surprised me at all because we've seen that before. And when we've seen it, it's been pretty horrible to watch. It's a train wreck, man. And remember, the trains can't stop. That, however, did not happen to Hideki. He wouldn't let it. He birdied number two, including this shot from the bunker. Let's go out to two. May it be the first Japanese male to win a major championship in this man. Wow. Dottie, that was pretty special. It was. Uh, you know, bunker play is not normally his strength, but he is uh, well better than average this week. That was pretty special. That was cool. He just did his thing while everybody around him couldn't do anything at all. And before long, that four-shot lead that had been cut to one was back up to five and then to six. Now we're just talking about a smooth, easy victory lap. You've got everybody else playing for second, and this guy's got it. At least usually that's the cliche. But in this case, that was a fact. Spieth, Rom, Z, Rose, all hoping to finish second because there were no way they were going to run down the leader. He was just playing rock-solid golf, and they were all backing up. The pressure was getting to them, not to him. And then just when you thought that all the drama got sucked out of it completely and there was no chance of any excitement on the back nine, then we get to 15. Xander. Love Xander. Xander had birdied three straight, going to 15. And then Hideki absolutely cranked a four-iron. Back at 15. And Matsuyama getting set to play. He stands at the top of the hill with a four iron in his hand. 219 to the front, 236 to the hole. Directly out. Uh oh! Crank, softly, crank. softly. Uh -oh. oh no. Yes! Just came out so low and took a huge bounce off that downslope, Nick. I thought he'd go with a, you know, a fade against the breeze to hold it up. Just pulls it a hair, rockets through, rockets through. Can't imagine what Tokyo TV sounds like now. So our guy caught that so flush, it went further than expected. So the leader finds himself on the 15th and then has to scramble to get up. Meanwhile, Xander is doing things like this. Sitting beautifully. It will be speedy, but controllable. It's gotten an up and in from one bunker today, or all, you, all week, excuse me, just one. Little grab on the second bounce and now feeding down there perfectly. Oh! What a shot! Two chip shots and one bunker shot. Probably a total of two feet from the hole. Dude, imagine if that went in. Can you imagine the pressure and the tension and the drama going into the last three holes if that had dropped? Doesn't matter. Lead was down to two. Xander was rolling. Hideki might be rattled. But then again, you couldn't tell, right? Maybe, just maybe, the pressure was getting to him. But then Xander went to the tee on the iconic 16th. And as well as he was playing, and man, my man was rolling. Somehow, some way, he did this. Wind is in the player's face and from the left, Vern. This is an eight iron. Extremely high, just right at the flag. Oh! 
definitely in the water. There are the ripples. It hit a wall of wind. Man, just when you thought there might be some extraordinary drama, just when you thought Xander might have a chance to somehow rip the green jacket, he gets wet. And he did it in a situation where it seemed harder to find the water than to not. And that sent his third shot into the gallery. And I don't know if it was the pressure or the moment that got to Xander. I certainly would not crush him for it. If it did, that's just how brutal that pressure is. Sunday at Augusta, it makes great golfers do really weird things. And it says here, this will not be the last time that Xander is in contention on the back nine on Sunday at Augusta. I'm not worried about him. That's going to hurt. That's going to sting. That's going to stay with him. But I'm not worried about him. He will be back in a similar spot with a chance to win. And I think he will at some point. Just like I'm not going to worry about Hideki either because that final obstacle was that tee shot on 18. He nailed it, complete with a club twirl. Thought it was badass. Nothing but respect for breaking out the twirl on the 72nd hole when you've got a lead at the Masters. And then he closed it out. It's okay. (laughs) Right down to the wire. Who predicted that by one? Matsuyama is Japan's first Masters champion. And there he is, your Masters champ. The pressure gets to everybody. It just did not get to him nearly as much. He treated that pressure like a privilege. He shook it off. Man, he was he was something else. He's he played uh, like a winner needs to play. He was like a robot. That's the X Man right there talking about the winner, making winning the green jacket and making history as the first male golfer from Japan to win a major, and that will no doubt be huge there. But there is no reason why he shouldn't be huge everywhere. Don't limit it to just that. He just won the Masters. He's a hell of a player. He could be a hero in Japan and all around the world because that was cold as hell. That was brass as hell. That was cool as hell. Loved it. Hey, you want to hear something utterly amazing? Discover matches all the cash back that you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year automatically with no limit on how much you can earn. Now, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. That's where. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2021 Nielsen Report. Limitations do apply. He is Alan Shipnook. Alan, good to have you back. How are you? I'm doing well, Romy. Thanks for having me. Always good to talk to you, Alan. Thanks so much. Now, you started off your piece for Golf Digest with the fact that Hideki Matsuyama drives a minivan, and he is so private that nobody even knew he was married until well after the fact. Let me start right there. What is your sense of who this guy is and what he's all about? Well, I mean, he's a golf obsessive. He he lives the game. I mean, he's often the last guy at the range. He's he has a gift, and he's dedicated his whole life to, to realizing his potential. And uh, there's very few distractions in his life, uh, despite the fact he's an icon in Japan. I mean, he, he does he does not live like a rock star. He doesn't see himself that way. He's hyper focused on, on on being a great golfer, and uh, so he you know he has this this very this dichotomy in his life where when he's when he's in Japan. Uh, he's, he's one of the biggest athletes over there. When he comes to the U.S., he can kind of 
do his thing. He uses the language barrier as a shield. You know, he actually speaks better English than he lets on, but that means he doesn't have to interact with American reporters and, and anyone in the tournament he doesn't want to deal with, and he's in a little bit of a cocoon. So uh, he's just a, a bit of a golf terminator, and uh, he's fun to watch. I mean, he, he smashes the ball, and he has a little bit of a swagger, um, but there's, there's also sort of that reflexive uh, respect that um, that he brings to what he's doing. And, you know, the, the image of his caddy bowing, to the golf course at the end, that was a graceful end note to the win, and uh, so it, it's kind of a nice mix of east and west. And uh, but he's one hell of a player, and uh, this was this was not a shock. I mean, he's been building towards this for a long time. A great moment, very good explanation too. Alan Shipnook is joining us. You know, before we talk about what went down on Sunday and what that means, go back to Saturday for a minute, Alan, if you don't mind. The way he played the back nine on Saturday, in your mind, where does that rank among the all-time great Saturday back nine performances at Augusta? Yeah, it's right up there. You know, that it's it's an underrated thing. Of various, you know, great champions have taken control of the tournament, sort of grabbed it by its throat on, on Saturday afternoon. I mean, Dustin did it just last year with a bogeyless 65, but, you know, Nicholas and, and Hogan and Seve and Tiger, they've all they've all had some epic Saturdays that really allowed them to cruise in the final round, and that was, that was Hideki's blueprint. I mean, uh, the weather came in and, and the course changed, it, it would have been so brick hard, the greens, the first two days. And the, the players are mostly playing defense out there. The rains came, and there was a little delay. And when they got back out on the golf course, most players were, were still in that, that mindset. But Hideki just started attacking. And because the greens were a little more receptive and because his ball striking was, was just so precise, you know, he went on that tear, shot 30 on the back nine to open up a four-stroke lead. And that that was really the key sort of, two hours of the whole tournament was the way he just took control on, on Saturday evening. Alan Shipnook is joining us. Salon, what about Sunday? You know, he, he's grinding it out, and he's stringing together pars. Nobody else is making a move at all. How do you explain what happened to everybody else and the fact that outside of Xander Shoffley, nobody really made a run at Hideki? Yeah, and Shoffley did come until after he completely, um, I was going to say a bad word, after he completely went sideways on the front nine, you know, four, five, and six. Uh, he, you know, he was four over par in a three-hole span, and it was like, okay, now he's, he's given the tournament away. He can freewheel it and start making birdies. And as soon as he got close, he dumped it in the in the water on 16. I mean, it was such a weird round. It was the most unlikely even par 72 you'll ever see out of Shoffley with a double and a triple. But you know, Augusta just gets in these guys' heads. I mean, you've seen it from whether it's Johnny Miller or it's Ernie Els or it's Greg Norman. There's a long list of great champions whose games. You know, more recently, Roy McIlroy, their games seem tailor-made to this golf course, but it just puts them on edge. Part of it is they want it too much. It's, it's the most coveted tournament there is with all the, you know, the Southern fried um, traditions and, and all that stuff that, that people seem to take way too seriously. But um, it's just the most risk-reward golf course there is. And it's, you're walking on a knife's edge the whole time. You know, a couple yards makes a huge difference going into those greens. Uh, between having an easy birdie look and getting ejected. And, um, and it just it short-circuits these guys' brains. I mean, there's no other way to explain what happened to, to Justin Thomas this year, uh, who's coming off a huge win at the Players' Championship and was playing great. And he, he makes an eight out of the middle of fairway, you know, to basically, um, you know, remove himself from the proceedings. And that happened again. I mean, the, the conditions were not as tough on Sunday as they've been on, on Thursday and Friday. But everyone... It, it, who you cared about, who was in the hunt, was going backwards. Uh, whether it was Jordan Spieth or it was Justin Rose, you know, Shoffley on the front nine. 
and you know they just they they just couldn't get it done. Uh, you know, it, whether it's mental or physical, these these guys just cannot handle the golf course on Sunday. Um, and you see it year after year at the Masters. That's part of what you know. It, it just messes with their mind. That's what makes it such a great tournament course. And it did allow Matsuyama just to kind of cruise around, and then he got hot there at the turn. You know, with you know birdieing eight and nine. And all of a sudden, he's an amen corner, leading by six, and it was like um, it was a pretty boring Sunday. There was there was just a, a few moments of drama when, when Shoffley made his run, but as soon as he hit it into the the water on sixteen, and you know that just allowed Matsuyama to play prevent defense the rest of the way. Yeah, I hate to say it, I hated to see that Alan Shipnook. I think he'll bounce back from it, but that's that's going to sting. That's going to leave a mark. Now, you had a fascinating piece for Golf Digest over the weekend about what happens right after somebody wins the Masters and the ceremony and the procedures that follow. As an example, we all see the event in Butler Cabin, but what is Butler Cabin really like? For instance, how big is it? Yeah, it's huge. I mean, it's four bedrooms with a, with a bunch of bathrooms. That's on, on kind of the, 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 the floor you walk into. Down below, it's the whole TV studio. And I've sneaked into the cabin a few times, which is actually got banned from the Masters in 2013. And that, that's, that's a story for another day. But, um, you know, it's, it's no, it's I mean, not, I, dude. That's a story for any day, including this day. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, the, my job is to take readers places they can't go, and so I'd, I've been in the cabin with Zach Johnson in '07 and wrote about it, uh, skated off that one. And in 2012, I walked in with Bubba Watson and his people, and one of the uh, the officials asked me to leave because he just recognized me. But at that point, Bubba was in a cart on his way to the cabin to be reunited with his family. And I needed that scene for my story. So I took the long way out of the cabin by way of one of the bathrooms and um, just kind of hung out for a while. And then I heard a huge cheer, just how I knew Bubba had arrived. And I did a fake flush and I opened the door. But the general manager of Augusta National was standing there and he was pissed. Wow. And uh, uh, I got escorted off the grounds. But it was worth it because of the cover story. It had some great scenes from the cabin. But. Yeah, I mean, the cabin itself isn't much. I would describe the style as, you know, southern masculine. It's all, you know, dark wood and plaid. But it's just the aura about it that, uh, that's cool. And there's there's about 15 or 20 minutes where after the green jacket ceremonies, indoor and outdoor, after the press conferences, they bring the champ back to be to see his family and his loved ones. And it's really their first time to enjoy it. It's the first time they've seen him wearing the blazer in person and it's quite emotional, and that that's been the backdrop for a few of my my SI cover stories. But um, and then from there, they all go and have dinner with with the Green Jackets, you know, with the, the whole membership, and it's quite a sight. You know, I, I walked in with with Zach and his and his family, and you know, it's just a room full of uh, old white guys in Green Jackets, and it's quite a scene. Uh, and they have this very formal dinner, and and the champ is, uh, you know, he's he's the man of, the man of the hour. So. A lot of the members were among the most powerful people in the world are coming over and shaking his hand and reliving the day. And it's, uh, it's, it's one of those Augusta traditions that is, it happens uh, out of the public eye, but it certainly means a lot to the players and something they never forget. It actually sounds pretty awesome and pretty unique. Alan Shipnook joining us. What happened when Phil Mickelson was there and wanted to raid the wine cellar? <laughs> right. So this is in 2004 when, when Phil, you know, was long away to break through. He made that walk-off birdie. It's the greatest moment of his career. And so, um, you know, Phil, Phil's a, he's an ownophile. He, he loves his wines. And the cellar at Augusta National is legendary. I mean, it's one of the, the best in the world. And they buy the futures on all the best Bordeaux and all, the, all these great wines. And they have many bottles that they're into the thousands of dollars and, and some into the tens of thousands of dollars. And so 
Phil tells Hootie Johnson, the then chairman, he's like, Hootie, I just won the Masters. I want to celebrate. You know, go deep into the cellar and bring me the best stuff you got. And you know, unlike the Champions Dinner on Tuesday night, the the club provides the food and, and the and the drinks for the Sunday night dinner. So, uh, you know, it's the 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 defending champion and pays for the dinner on Tuesday night. But that's not the case on um, right when you've won on Sunday. And so, um, so Phil gets pulled away to do something, but his wife Amy's kind of lingering. She's only told me the story, and and she hears Hootie say to one of his lieutenants. Do be sure that Mr. Mickelson has presented the wine bill tonight. And, um, so uh, I was I was trying to get a number on on how how deep they took it, but um, Amy said I, I think we probably you know we definitely broke even or more. You know, the first place broke even. Uh, yeah, for a million plus. <laughs> She's like, it's okay. We got to keep the jacket. It's all good. So uh, I I think she was exaggerating, but yeah, no doubt there was a lot of good wine that was drained out of the cellar that night. That's such a good story. Big boy getting after it. All right, so really quickly, what is the significance of Hideki's win mean for the game of golf globally? Yeah, it's huge. I mean, with the with the Olympics in Tokyo, uh, he's the first Japanese man to win a major championship. He's only the second uh, man from Asia. Wai Yang, of course, was the first in '09, but that was somewhat flukish, and, and Yang just faded away. Whereas Matsuyama's only 29, and he's going to be he's going to be a force for a long time. So he is now going to loom over these Olympics like you know Godzilla marching through the the high rises of Tokyo. Like it, he's going to there's a lot of talk now. He's going to be the one to get to light the cauldron, which is, of course is a huge honor for the, the home country, uh, whichever athlete is chosen. And you know golf is very tenuous in the games. It came back in Rio, and a bunch of the top players didn't go because they're afraid of getting a mosquito bite. And they brought much shame to the sport by 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 not showing up when every other athlete in the world did. Um, and even now, in the midst of a global pandemic, they're traveling the world playing golf. So um, it's clearly they weren't really afraid of Zika. That was just the smokescreen that a lot of them conveniently latched onto. So if the top stars keep skipping golf, in the in the Olympics, they're going to get the, the sports going to get booted out again, and like it did for 112 years previously. So uh, that's a, a really uh, strong concern within the game. But Matsuyama has kind of made all that go away. And who cares if Dustin Johnson is fishing that week? Um, you know, Matsuyama is going to be the biggest star over there, and he's going to carry the whole thing. And if he can if he can get if he can pull a medal to accessorize his new blazer, um, that's going to be a huge thing for the sport because. While golf is not a traditional Olympic sport, what's happened is the the federations throughout Asia, Latin America, other parts of the world, they've pumped tons of money into the grassroots programs because it's a pretty easy way to win a medal. You know, you can be you can be five foot four like Ryan Harmon. You don't have to be a physical specimen to win a medal in golf. And uh, so a lot of these these, these sort of second tier countries see it as a, as a path to to increase their medal count. So. As long as golf is in the Olympics, the game is going to grow in places where it really hasn't before. Um, that that helps everyone. It helps pay Dustin Johnson's, uh, you know, endorsement deals. All the all the the product that Taylor made moves throughout the world, it goes right in his pocket. Yet he won't even show up to play. So it's very disappointing, sort of the myopia of of the game's top stars who have skipped the Olympics. And that's why Matsuyama being there, 
being the master's champ, being the master of ceremonies is, is so monumental for, for golf in these Olympics. Well said, right? Like DJ is thinking, what, why do I have to? Why do I have to? Why do I have to go? I'm getting paid anyway to sit right here. Listen, I mentioned off the top that you're a partner with the Fire Pit Collective. Now, I'm a huge Fire Pit guy. I, maybe it's me. I've got to think there's some kind of metaphor or analogy in there and that you're not giving up your writing to build fire pits. What exactly is this all about? How did it come to be? Well, you know, if you go to some of the citadels of the game, whether it's Bandon Dunes or it's Pinehurst or it's Pebble Beach, there's always a great fire pit. And yep. after the round, you're sitting around and you're having a toddy and you're telling your stories and every parse becomes more dramatic and every putt you hold twice as long. And it's become an ingrained part of, of the game. And so, um, you know, my longtime uh, great friend Matt Janelle and I were building our own media company and uh, we're calling the Fire Pit Collective because all we want to do is tell great stories about the game, whether podcasts, it's going to be video storytelling, all my typing is going to go there. Um, I, I, did, I did cover the Masters for Golf Digest, which is owned by Discovery TV, with whom we have signed a content distribution deal. So it's kind of a, a handy little marriage for now. But um, really, we want to grow our own company. We want to do our own thing. And it's going to be kind of a clearinghouse for a lot of great golf content. And we're the bosses. We can do whatever we want which, uh, you know, both of us have suffered the tyranny of of editors and uh, owners and various point missers and obstructionists. And now now we can just have fun and tell it like it is. So we're very excited. We just launched it last month and uh, we've been been scooping up investment capital. We're about to announce some hires and, and really launch this thing. So we're we're quite excited. Good for you, man. I like that a lot. That's the Fire Pit Collective. He is a longtime golf writer. He is a contributor to Golf Digest. And as I mentioned, the recipient of 11 first place awards from the Golf Writers Association of America, Alan Shipnook, my guest. Alan, great job. Really appreciate that. Thanks so much. Hey, thanks for having me. When you call a Dell Technologies advisor, you are talking to somebody who is not waiting for their turn to speak. No, they actually want to hear what you have to say. They're focused on you, ready to give advice on everything from laptops to the cloud and offer tailored solutions powered by Intel vPro platform to keep your small business ready for what's next. Our advisors listen so you know your small business needs have been heard. Call a Dell Technologies advisor today at 877-ASK-DELL. That's 877-ASK-DELL. Now, if there's one team the Padres love getting over on as much as the Dodgers, then it's the Texas Rangers. Remember last year when the Rangers threw that all-time bitch fit, when Fernando Tatis hit a salami on a 3-0 pitch, when the Pods were already up by 7. I mean, that's a sentence and a story that even to this very moment still baffles me. How could a major league team ever be upset at another major league hitter for swinging at a pitch thrown by a major league pitcher who's getting paid to in a major league game. How could you get that pissed? Yeah, Rome, well, since you never played the game at a high level, you just don't get it. Right. I don't get it. And I haven't gotten it. But, in fact, that's what happened. And then the Padres hit three more grand slams in three straight nights, all against the Rangers swept their asses, set an MLB record, and then they got glossed the Slam Diego Padres for their efforts. So, the two of these teams have history, and it's not good history, and I love it. Enter San Diego pitcher Joe Musgrove on the bump this past Friday night against the Rangers. If I'm talking about something that happened Friday night and it jumped the entire weekend, it must have been pretty damn good. 
It's either really good or really bad. So why don't we just fast forward all the way to the 27th out of that game, and then you will understand why this jumped the weekend. Ground ball to shortstop. Kim will go to first. The San Diego Padres get their first no-hitter in the history of the franchise, and it belongs to San Diego's own Joe Musgrove. The JoJo no-no. That's amazing, right? Their first no-hitter in the 52-year history of the Padres. And the only thing better is the fact that it came against the Rangers. And the only thing better than that is that Joe Musgrove grew up in El Cajon, is a massive Padres fan. You know, kind of like, El Cajon! Is there not cell coverage out there? So this dude just spins the first no-no in his favorite team's history against a team they now hate. How awesome is that? Not as awesome is what he said about it after the game. I drink a lot of water, one. I think I went through 11 or 12 water bottles tonight, and I always keep them empty ones next to me so I can kind of keep track of how many I'm drinking throughout the game. And I had to piss so bad in, like, the fourth or fifth inning, but I couldn't. That was the one thing I didn't want to break, like, the superstition of it. Didn't want me to have to go, you know, use the bathroom in the middle of the start. All right, so baseball dudes and their superstitions. I don't come between these guys and their superstitions, right? They're some of the most superstitious people ever. And if it works for you, then why the hell not? And clearly what he had working was working. But to hear him lay that out the way he did, I'm not sure what's more impressive. Holding on to a full bladder of yes or throwing the no-no on a full bladder of yes or drinking a dozen bottles of water in three hours. It's a lot of water. I mean, I'm not sure I've knocked back 12 bottles of water in my entire life, much less during a three-hour game. Good thing my man didn't pull Mark Schlereth and throw that yiss right down his leg in the middle of a game. True story. That's pretty much how Stink got his name Stink. Not hitting the John, not hitting the head in the middle of a start, isn't the only superstition that this guy has either. Check out my man's bubble gum setup. I, I chew gum between innings. Something, one, just to keep getting some like moisture in my mouth, you know, and just kind of keep giving me something busy to do in between innings. But I always, before we start, I'll line up nine pieces of bubble gum on my towel. And every half inning, I'll come in and I'll eat a piece and then I'll spit it out as I'm going out of the dugout. And I kind of like that. So I try not to look at the scoreboard as much as I can. So I kind of mark my innings by the little pile of gum that I spit out right there. And tonight's the first night that I got to chew all nine pieces. Wow. I mean, I understand these guys have their regimens and their routines and their process. My guy's laying out nine pieces of gum before every game. And that's the first time he's ever gone through all nine pieces of gum. Yo, dude, we got to know what kind of gum. What kind of gum? Are we talking Bubblicious? Are we talking Bazooka? Are we talking Double Bubble? Big League Chew? I need to know, man. Dentine? Trident? What kind of gum? And like in the age of analytics, about the only time a pitcher is going to get to the ninth piece of bubble gum is by throwing a no-no, right? There's a reason why he never had all nine pieces. You pretty much have to throw a no-hitter to pitch a complete game, which is exactly what he did. And he lived to talk about it. Because there's something here, right? It's not just a matter of, quote, holding it in. Like, we all can hold it in. But there are certain 
consequences medically for holding it in too long. If I'm not mistaken, remember Fat Matt Harvey? He apparently held in the yiss for too long during a start, and it turned into a blood clot. And I'm not sure my man's ever been the same. Regardless, huge congrats to the hometown kid. Look at this guy's line. 12 bottles of water, 9 pieces of gum, 27 outs, no hits allowed, and San Diego Padre history. Not bad for a Friday night. That can't be your proverbial Friday night news dump. You knew that was going to jump the weekend. Good on you, dude. Especially since you had to hold it in all game long and you got to all nine of your pieces of gum. I'm telling you, man, they're going to have a real look. The Padres are going to have a real look. They're not hot. They're good. They're really good. Nice depth in the rotation. Bullpen's got some action. They've got bats. They've got a chip on their shoulder. I like it. I like it. And as far as Matt Harvey, quote, this goes back to Matt Harvey in 2016, quote, I guess the main issue is I hold my urine in for too long instead of peeing regularly. I guess I have to retrain my bladder to use the restroom a little bit more instead of holding it in. Yeah, I don't know, bro. Maybe you retrain your brain. Or maybe you don't have to retrain or rewire anything. Maybe you just tell yourself, when it's time to go, you go. You know, it's not like you're three and need to be led to the bathroom. If doing so is giving you blood clots, maybe you stop doing so. Quote, I guess it started with a bladder infection that created a blood clot in the bladder. Passed it yesterday. It wasn't a great first day of my 27th birthday, but clear that. We had a little procedure done this morning just to go in and check the bladder and everything was clear. Hey. Hey, listen. Usually by the age of 27, you figured out when and how to go to the bathroom. And there are certain things that are not preventable. Certain things that just happen physically. Dude, that seems to me to be pretty preventable. The way you laid that out. And I know that was back in 2016. I'm just saying, as a cautionary tale, here's a matter of policy. If you need to go, go. Otherwise, you could end up like that. Like fat Matt with a fat clot. Dude, I don't know, man. I'm not a doctor. And I don't even try to play one here on radio or TV. But it seems to me blood clots are not something you'd hope for. That's not a positive development. You do not want a blood clot. I think I'm looking at these numbers. I think if I recall correctly, he went into that season with an ERA of 271. But since giving himself the blood clot, allegedly, he has not dropped below four. Padres are nice, man. Padres are nice. We are joined by their new coach, Mike Woodson. Mike, it is so good to have you back in the jungle. How you doing, Mike? 
I'm doing fine, Jim. It's been a long time since you and I have chatted. Man, it has been a long time, Mike, and I appreciate it very much. It's great to get caught up with you already. Listen, you return to your alma mater. You hit the ground running. There's a lot of buzz around the program right now. What have the first couple of weeks on the job been like for you? Well, it's been busy, I'll tell you that. You know, when when I took the job, you know, I had a, a number of players that entered the portal. And, you know, that was – you know, that was a situation where I had to get on top of right away in terms of trying to keep our our best players, you know, on this on this ball club. And we were able to do that. We lost one player in, in Armand Franklin who who uh decided he wanted to leave and and then we were able to bring in a player by the name of Xavier Johnson from Pittsburgh, which I think is a talent force that's really going to help us uh, as we move forward with this ball club. But I'm knee deep, you know, looking at players in the portal. Um, you know, we have, a, I think, two two scholarships still left. So I'm still doing my, my homework and watching film and, and trying to locate a couple of players that I think can help our program. We're talking to Mike Woodson. Mike, I got a couple of questions about that just to follow up. For instance, something that always comes up when I talk to coaches who take over a program is they're coaching players that they did not recruit and that did not commit to them specifically, and that's the situation you're in right now. So how do you go about developing those relationships quickly, and then what is your message to them? Well, again, you know, it's not their fault that, you know, I'm the coach. You know, they, the university made a, a decision to change and go in a different direction. I was hard, and, you know, I can't look back in the past. You know, they're part of this ball club. It's my job to to develop them. Um, I don't look at it as Woody didn't recruit these guys. They're on our ball club, so they're important to me as we move forward and, until they prove me wrong. And I'm going to do everything possible that I can along with my staff to – to uh, develop these players and and put them in a position to be success, successful to help us win basketball games because that's what it's all about at the end of the day. Mike Woodson, the new head coach at IU, is joining us. Now, less than a week after you took over, Trace Jackson Davis announced that he was going to come back. And as part of his announcement, he said, quote, I believe in Coach Woodson and I believe in the tradition of Indiana basketball, end quote. What's it mean to the program to have him back, and how good can he be next season? It was huge. I mean, here's a young man that that averaged 20 and nine in the Big Ten. I mean, he's he was our best player, and I I just could not afford to to have him leave our ball club and go somewhere else. And you know, his parents were fantastic as we went down the road and trying to sit and talk and 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 get him to commit to come back and he was great in terms of our conversations that we had before he made the decision and you know I like I told the young man I thought I can can help polish his game and get him ready for the next the next level because that make make no mistake about it Jim all these young men that go to college they want to play professional basketball and I get it you know and but I just didn't think that he was ready at at this particular time, and that his game needed to be a little more polished. And, and if I'm able to do that, 
and, and developing him, I can't help but think that our ball club will be a lot better this season, and he'll be in position to to do a lot of great things, not only for himself, but for our ball club. We're talking Indiana basketball. Mike Woodson's the head coach. You know, Mike, obviously, it's your point. You're so right. I mean, these guys want to get to the association. They want to play pro ball. I know you've only been on the job a couple of weeks, but what is your sense as to the biggest difference between coaching in the NBA and coaching in college? Well, I mean, we're coaching younger players in college. There's the, you got young men that are coming out of high school and you know, and I get that. You know, I I had my run-in with young players when I first took over the Atlanta Hawks. And, you know, it's challenging, but it's fun. I mean, if you enjoy coaching and enjoy teaching and developing players, it becomes fun because it's who's going to outlast who, you know. And my job as a coach and my staff, when I put it together in Atlanta, as well as putting it together here, you know, we'll have some challenging times. I get that, but... At the end of the day, you know, we all like coaching, man. I want to see a young man develop and, and, and individually and in a team setting and see how he fits into to the realm of what we're trying to do and see how our team moves forward. I mean, that's what coaching is all about. I mean, I've had this question, you know, hey, well, can Woody coach in, in college? I mean, coaching is coaching. I think it's, it's how you – push the right buttons with these young men in terms of developing them and, and putting them in the best position possible to be successful, man. I mean, that's how I look at coaching. You know, Mike, I was going to say to extend that thought because you have played for, you have played for and coached with some of the biggest names ever. Larry Brown, for instance, raves about you. He recently told WDRB, quote, Woody, aside from being an unbelievable X and O guy, he's got unbelievable people skills, which today I think is more important than X's and O's, end quote. What's that mean to hear that from him? And do you agree with him? Are people skills more important today than X's and O's? I think people skills are a big part of it. Yeah, you still have to X and O some too. Uh, My thing is, I think all coaches, when they go into a, a season, they're trying to put a system in place that works for them. You know, I don't try to coach like other coaches. You know, yes, do I still if <laughs> do I still plays and defensive concepts from other coaches? We all do that. You know, that's healthy, I think. But, you know, I have the utmost respect for Larry Brown because I think when I had the opportunity to work for him and I played briefly for him, you know, he taught me how to organize. He taught me how to prepare and, and and he taught me how to what how important it was in developing players there because if you don't do that then your team it never grows as a team and I mean he's put me in a position to really be a great coach Larry Brown did and I mean I thank him for that but and you know I, I he's always had kind words to say about me and I I feel the same about him because he's he's such a He's been such a hell of a coach over the years, man. The guy is brilliant to me when it comes to coaching. Mike, I love the guy. I've always loved Larry Brown. He's one of my favorite guys ever. He's a hell of a coach. He's a hell of a teacher, hell of a personality, a character. I I, I love Larry Brown personally. The story goes, Mike, before you go, when you were in high school, you went to camp at IU. You won a three-on-three tournament. Bob Knight gave you a T-shirt. He said that he would keep an eye on you during your senior year of high school, and then you end up going to play for him. What was your takeaway or your biggest takeaway from your playing time for Coach Knight? 
it kind of set the stage in terms of my career. And now this circling back is, it's been unbelievable for me because, you know, my high school coach and all the high school coaches probably back then mimic, you know, a lot of things that coach Knight did on the floor. And, you know, Indiana was the only school that I ever wanted to play for as a kid growing up. And when I got that opportunity to go and and compete in a camp here at the university and, and win that T-shirt, I thought that was the biggest thing that ever happened for Mike Woodson at that young uh, age. And when he followed me my senior year and, and offered me the scholarship to come here, man, I – I couldn't get here fast enough. I mean, I came in with five other All-Americans that year, and I was determined to play, man. I mean, I felt that good about how I played as a player and not knowing that I would start. And I didn't start the first game, but the second game, and there on I was a starter here at Indiana University and, and, and had a good career. I mean, he had a lot to do with it, man. He really did. So, Mike, a final thought. Like, you played for guys like Red Holtzman, Larry Brown that we talked about, but also Don Chaney. You work with Larry Brown, George Carl, Doc Rivers, to name a few more. You've been a head coach. As somebody who's been a head coach and you've been around so many great head coaches, is there something that all great head coaches have in common? They work. You know, they put in the time. Um, you know, Cotton Fitzsimmons, who was – was my mentor early on who got me into coaching. You know, I just, you know, I've watched coaches over the years, the Tom Thibodeaux, the Doc Rivers, the Larry Brown, the Don Chaney, the Chris Fords, the George Carls, the Randy Whitman. I mean, it just goes on and on. The people that I've had an opportunity to work for and play, you know, with Red and Cotton and Gene Shue, uh, I mean, it was just so many great coaches that been in my life, and the one thing that stands out when you when you think about those coaches, they put in the time, they were successful, you know, during their time, and and there was a reason why because they worked at it, man, and that's that's what it's all about, you know. That's the only way I know. I get that. He is the head basketball coach at Indiana. Like, man, there is no secret sauce. There is no hack. There is no shortcut. The secret sauce is the work, right? Do the work. Well, that's how I learned as a player. And, again, when I started working with a lot of coaches, man, you just – if you want to be a coach, man, you got to put in the time. I mean, it's it's just not going to fall in your lap and say, here it is, man. I mean, you got to watch a lot of film. you got to – study players you gotta you know push players to to play at a high level i mean it's just a lot it's it's a lot to coaching man that's why i have so much respect for coaches man and i don't care what sport it is what level they coach on man it's hard coaching you know i mean and if you're dedicated and you put in the time good things happen and I've had a lot of good things that's happened for me not only as a player but as a coach as well yes you have he was introduced as head coach on March 29th he was an All-American and a Big Ten Player of the Year in Indiana at Indiana 11 years as a player in the NBA a lot of success coaching as well and a great new opportunity with IU Mike it is great to have you back on the show I know we will be doing more of this and it's good to hear your voice thanks so much Mike congrats Jim it's great to hear your voice I've always been a big fan my brother a really funky day in the association yesterday 
because April 11th, 2021 was one of the filthiest, dirtiest, nastiest days I've ever seen in the NBA, in the history of the league. There were dunks, there were highlight reel jams all over the league. Every time you thought that you had seen the best dunk of the day, another one surfaced. It was wild. It was like an epidemic of dunking. No, better yet, a dunking pandemic. I was looking for the abused to be getting their dunk 19 vaccines before running back up the floor. It was a pandemic of dunks. Like, if people still made posters, yesterday was an absolute poster factory. Instead, there will be NFTs for days coming off yesterday. Let me give you a quick sampling. You had Jalen Brown getting up and throwing down on the Nuggets. A team that was arguably playing the best of anybody in the league over the last three weeks. Correct. Whoa! Now it's just an all-star game right now. Celtics getting involved in their own dunk contest. Jalen Brown drives it, elevates. You don't even want to go up there and challenge him. Dude, that was macho. If you're watching on CBS Sports Network, man, that was filthy as hell. And at any other time... That would be the dunk of the day, if not the dunk of the week. Except yesterday, that doesn't even make the podium. Because there was just so much grime, so much filth, so much scum being thrown around yesterday. In fact, there was so much of that, even Pandemic P got in on the act. Regardless of the shot clock, when he catches, he's making a quick decision. Paul George! Oh! Oh my goodness! Paul George, wow. Haven't seen anything like that from that guy in a long time. He wrecked the rim nearly as badly as he wrecked the side of the backboard in the playoffs last year. George, way off. It's the side of the backboard. You shoot one off the side of the backboard like that in the playoffs, that ain't going away. But seriously, that jam, that was legit. That was so legit from Pandemic P. And yet there was more. Paging Lonnie Walker. Paging Lonnie Walker. Please come to the courtesy phone. Lonnie Walker. Spurs again get it back here as Patty Mills gives Lonnie Walker. No. Oh, my goodness. What a dunk. That might be... I don't, that could be a candidate for dunk of the year. I mean, that was just all over. That counts all over the entire city of Dallas. Throw it down, big man. Like, dude, that was revolting. I hope you're watching along on CBS Sports Network. That was disgusting. On the break, doesn't even bother to put the ball on the ground. No dribbles. He gets the rock. He elevates. He abuses the rim. You want to talk about the ultimate man's game. Man's game. That that was so disgusting. Members of the Spurs bench were covering each other's eyes. I can see why the announcers might be suggesting that as a candidate for dunk of the year. Because in any other year, it might be. But I can only assume that they're saying that because they did not see what Miles Bridges did. I know Ritt did, because Ritt was doing what he does. Tweeting and rambling on incoherently and embarrassing himself, his family, and more importantly, me. Ritt lost his mind when he saw that and went right to his phone. However, 
in his defense, and you know what? It's getting a little troubling how much I've been defending that old kook lately. And I have, too. If you saw what Miles Bridges did, you would not be calling Lonnie Walker's jam the dunk of the year. You would not even be calling Lonnie Walker's jam a dunk at all. Miles Bridges has been a legendary dunker for years. We know this. But what he did yesterday made Lonnie Walker's dunk look like some sort of normal layup drill bleep before a game. Because Miles didn't just destroy Atlanta's defense with that dunk. He destroyed the definition of a dunk. Never mind being in the wrong place at the wrong time. You know, namely being in front of Miles Bridges. That's not about a defender getting his soul ripped. That's about an entire organization and an entire city getting their soul snatched. That's how good that dunk is. That dunk is so good. The clip had already gone viral before he even landed. That's how electric it was. Or maybe, maybe I'm just overhyping it. Maybe I'm overselling it. Yeah, maybe, or maybe I'm underrating it. Let's find out. Alvin, if you're working today, Alvin, roll it. McDaniels one-on-one mode has a smaller man on him. Rogier, Cody Zeller offensive rebound. Bridges! Oh, my God! Oh, what? A thunderbolt from Bridges! Oh, my word! The filthiest of the filthy! Oh, that'll be the death knell for Atlanta. You can't come back from that. Oh, my goodness. Clip it off. How come they don't just stop the game? All right, listen, I understand where guys get overhyped. I understand why the louder and more over-the-top you are right now, the better in the minds of many. That was justified. That response was justified. He just murdered Clint Capella in broad daylight, and thousands were there to witness it. How does that guy not leave the building cuffed after committing that crime they have murder in the first degree they have the murder weapon the ball they have the body capella i mean how the hell is bridges still walking around on the streets right now that was some vince carter on fred vice level dunking the charlotte hornets have been the most entertaining and watchable team in the league all year long they really have And they just went to a new level yesterday. They went from like the cool kind of new kid, the cool chic pick, to viral legends, thanks to Miles Bridges. That's how abusive that was. He treated Clint Capella the way DeAndre Jordan treated Brandon Knight. Except Brandon Knight is 6'2". Clint Capella is 6'10". And he's paid to protect the rim and does a really good job of it, generally. But there was no protection from that. I think I'd like to see that one more time, Alvin. Cody Zeller offensive rebound. Bridges! Oh my god! Oh, what? A thunderbolt from Bridges! Oh my word! The filthiest of the filthy! Oh, that'll be the death knell for Atlanta. You can't come back from that. Oh my goodness. Clip it off. How come they don't just stop the game? How come they don't just stop life? I'm not sure what's better. The dunk itself or the scream of Bridges! Bridges! From the announcer. It sounds like my dude just got hit in the face with a pot of scalding coffee when that went down. Bridges! Coffee! Oh! Bridges! Like dude's face is just melting. I've never heard anybody so enthusiastic about Bridges. 
before this guy. I mean, my man just loves, he just loves engineering. Bridges! Hey, yo, announcer dude, what is the best way to cross a body of water? Bridges! Yo, dude, what is a key part of our infrastructure? Bridges! What will we jump off of when we finally do get to that point? Bridges! What are we always told never to burn? Never burn a... Bridges! If you get hit in the face and you lose a couple of teeth, what can a dentist replace them with? Bridges! Yo, announcer dude, what is your favorite family of actors? Bridges! Good call. Lloyd, Jeff, Bo, they're legends. Bridges! I'm telling you, man, I can't get over that dunk. Give it to me one more time, Alvin. Just once. Cody Zeller, offensive rebound. Bridges! Oh, my God! Oh, what? A thunderbolt from Bridges! Oh, my word! The filthiest of the filthy! Oh, that'll be the death knell for Atlanta. You can't come back from that. Oh, my goodness. Clip it all. Since you already murdered Capella. Since you already murdered Capella, I'm not going to rush in and pile on. Guy was just doing his job. When you're doing your job in the NBA, part of that job is getting dunked on. That's just how it goes. It happens to everybody, especially a rim protector. So I'm not here to say anything negative about Capella other than to say that'll happen, and it did. But it was bad. It was so bad that Congressman Jamal Bowman tweeted, quote, under Medicare for all, Clint Capella would be fully covered at no cost, end quote. Congressman, come on, man. Why are you stomping on an already dead body? I would say, don't you have anything better to do, Congressman? But I know you don't. Actually, none of us do. We should all just stop everything, drop everything we're currently doing, and watch Miles Bridges abuse fools. Cody Zeller, offensive rebound. Bridges! Oh, my God! Oh, what? A thunderbolt from Bridges! Oh, my word! The filthiest of the filthy! Oh, that'll be the death knell for Atlanta. You can't come back from Do you that. Know, oh, my God. I'm as city as they come. I'm as city as they come. Got a little bit of beach in me. Got a little bit of lake in me. A little bit of mountains in me. Really no country at all. And I'm not judging. I'm just saying this is how I came up and this is where I live. But when we had a home in Montana for about 10 years, you know what we once did? We once climbed up on this thing. What was that? What do they call those things? Bridges! That's it. And we jumped off that thing into the water. It was fun. Bridges! There you go. I have a question. What is your favorite bridge? Bridges! Dear Rome, to answer the Hornets announcer's question about why they didn't stop the game, it's because there was time left on the clock. And it's a rule in the NBA that you have to play an entire game. Also, the Hawks came back and won. And it was a very important Eastern Conference matchup that put the Hawks above the Hornets in seeding. That's why they finished the game. Stupid announcer guy. How come they don't just stop the game? Mike in the ATL. Good point, Mike. Oh, I don't know. I guess I conveniently forgot, and they conveniently forgot about the scoreboard because, well... Bridges! Bridges! That'll be the death knell for Atlanta. Did my man look like he dunked off of the top of a bridge? Bridges!
Jarrett Patterson. Jarrett, good to have you back. How are you? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me back. It's good to have you back. All right, so bring me up to date. You and I did speak during the regular season. It's good to have you back on the show as you get ready for the draft. What has the draft process been like for you? Yeah, it's been, you know, a constant, you know, uh, a constant grind, you know, just preparing up uh, for, for my pro day, which I feel like, you know, was, was, was the hard part. But since that's out the way, now I'm just, you know, training. And you know, having having meetings with with teams, and you know, just waiting for 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 the draft. But it it's been a great experience, and I'm looking forward to whatever team I I, I may go to. Jared Patterson, my guest. All right, you mentioned the pro day, so let me ask you about that. You ran in the low four fives. You had said the teams had talked to you about the possibility of running in the four sixes. So how pleased were you with the way you ran that day? And then what did you want teams to take away from that? Yeah, I was very pleased. You know, because like you said. Uh, you know, just just talking to scouts and, and, and things like that. Uh, people thought I was going to run a, a four six and you know running a four five. Uh, I was definitely pleased with that and just showing that I, I I can I just don't run the ball. I can run routes. I can catch. And I I feel like pro day couldn't you know went any better for me. And I'm I'm very happy uh, the way way it turned out. Yeah, you've spent actually a great deal of time in Florida working on your receiving skills. What has that been like, and what are the parts of the game, your game, that you've been looking to improve upon? Yeah, it's always I – mean, I always, you know, I know the big, the big emphasis is, you know, they wanted to see that because I wasn't uh, required at Buffalo to, to be in the passing game, which I, I can always do those things. It's just I, weren't, I wasn't required, but uh, just when I was training up for a pro day, I just wanted to show how versatile I was and, and, and you know, running routes and catching the ball natural. You know, just having ball skills that I just don't run the run the ball. I'm a very you know all, very well balanced, versatile you know running back, and I feel like I showed that. Jared Patterson, my guest. Listen, I understand that losing the conference game was title game was pretty painful, and it actually made you think about staying in college for another year. So, what kind of conversations were you having at that time, and ultimately, what made you feel like it was time to enter the draft? Yeah, it definitely was painful, and then you know my my competitive side definitely wanted to you know come back and definitely win a MAC championship with with the guys I you know I grind with, you know I shed tears with, and you know definitely wanted to get. Uh, championship for that university and just really really my just going to the thought process you know with people in my corner and they really just thought it was best that i i i should you know enter the draft and i thought it was for for my best interest too as well i feel like i've done everything i could for the university of buffalo on the field and off the field and i definitely felt uh you know i could my game translates to the next level and that i was ready to uh you know chase my dream and and, and play in the national football league now, one of the things you and I spoke about during the season was your journey and the fact that you were overlooked when you were in high school and then you show up at Buffalo, you get some playing time, and you just start stacking records. You're breaking one record after another. Do you feel like, though, now that you've come through that process and even after putting up big numbers, that you're once again being overlooked and have to prove yourself all over again? Is that what it feels like to you and what's your mindset? Uh, not really. You know, it's just, uh, it's just really... My mindset is, uh, you know, I'm just proving myself right. You know, I'm not really, you know, trying to prove anyone wrong. You know, the people that, you know, say this and say that about me, I'm just proving myself right to them that, you know, I, I say who I, I say who I say I am, and and that 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 I, I can play at the next level, and that, you know, I, I I'm always, uh, you know, looking to get better, and you know, and to show why why uh, I'll be a heck of a player come Sunday. 
Jared Patterson, my guest. Now, you and I in the past have talked about your twin brother, James. I want to ask you about your mom. Now, coming up, your mom was super active in organizing summer workouts for you two and your two sisters. I'm curious, what were the workouts like? What was the humidity like when you were going through that? And like your mom, how involved was she in setting all this up? Yeah, so my mom, she in high school, she was a former, you know, track. Where our sisters, one more sisters, you know, play AAU basketball, and she would have my me and my brother, you know, run, so like just just do a whole like track workouts and just run, run around the track and just stuff like that. And we just she started at a at a young age and what what hard work really looks like, and and we just kind of uh, it developed over time and we just kind of master it each you know stage in, in in our careers. But it really started. I can remember her t- like I said, taking us to the park, running around, you know. The, uh, the park and, and, and just, just stuff like that. But she's definitely a, a big part of our work ethic, as, as my dad as well, too. Look, I was going to say, like, I spent the better part of my weekend taxing my teenage son around this past weekend, right? He didn't, doesn't have his license yet. So there's that part of it, but then there's, like, that next-level stuff. Like, your mom, did she have, or does she have that fire, that grit, that athletic thing that you need to have? Did you get that from her, yeah. too? Yeah, she definitely has the the fire, the grit. You know, my dad's the more laid back one, but she definitely you know has that fire, and you know she's she, she can definitely you know be be gritty. And I feel like we definitely get that get that from her for for sure. And and, and you know she she she's one when 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 she means business, you know she she means business. I think that's actually very cool. Jared Patterson joining us. You know, your coaches talk about your approach and the fact that you're a pro in practice and also in the film room, but it's not just about the details. It's also about doing whatever it takes to help your team win. As an example, you rushed for 301 yards and four TDs against Bowling Green. 36 hours later, you were playing kickoff coverage in practice. I mean, normally the guy, the alpha, the star, the man is not doing something like that. Why was that something you wanted to do in practice, especially after a big game like that? Yeah, just because, you know, I, I never – I was not even the guy, you know, like like you said, you know, I was never the, the, the highly recruited five-star guy. And, and that's just how I do. You know, I, I feel like you can always – I'm never satisfied with one performance. You can always get better on something, you know, and I feel like once you stop improving, you know, you're done. And I, I feel like I have that approach that I, I have that never get satisfied approach. I always want to get better, and, and whatever it might do, you know, I'm, I'm, at the end of the day, I'm trying to I try to strive, you know, for perfection. You know, we keep talking about approach and mindset, but these are things that always fascinate me. I want to ask you this because you recently told ESPN something that I really, really liked. Quote, my mentality is it's not how you get in the NFL. It's how you stay in. You can be a first or second rounder and still get cut. End of quote. To me, that's really smart. I think that's really strong. When you're going to be playing, what's your mentality going to be so you stay in the NFL once you get in the NFL? Yeah, just, you know, take it one day at a time, you know, and, and when opportunity presents itself, take full advantage. Like I've always done, that, that's what I love. every single day, you know, and, you know, and t- handle your business on the field. And um, I really take, you know, being accountable, you know, handling this business on the field, off the field, just being a pro, you know, and take care of the body. It's just the little things that can return to big things.
So smart. Just being a pro and taking care of your body, mind, take care of your body, maintain your approach and the process. The NFL draft is getting underway on April 29th. He played his college ball at Buffalo. He led the nation in rushing last season, nearly 180 yards per game. I ran it all down. All-American, first-team all-conference, MAC Offensive Player of the Year, and a really exciting time. Jarrett, great to have you back. Good to reconnect. Find out where you're going to play and live, and we'll do it again. Yeah, most definitely. Thank you for having me. Let's go to Los Angeles. This guy probably doesn't think so. Matt in L.A., what's up, Matt? You know that, Tance, Mac. Hey, thanks for the vine. Is it me or does fleeting CJ in the large body of water next to a fecally infested city seem to need some JC in his life? Hey, yo, BJ, keep my name out your mouth. Congrats on your watch list. However, watch as I bitch smack you like the no-cow never will be you are. You Frisco fickle bag area basket case. L.A.'s taking care of business, and so is your boy, Matt in L.A. Holler. War, Bill Ryder's bum of the week, irate Craig using discarded milk crates as cabinetry. War, Drizzle using corn cobs as microphones at his soup kitchen rap concerts. Outro! My man. I love Matt starting a call off by suggesting that somebody needs J.C. in their life. And then he makes that call. And it's just lighting dudes up. Did, did I hear that correctly? Did he re-gloss CJ to BJ? After invoking JC, he went from JC to CJ to BJ. That's counterintuitive. Good night!